Hi, welcome to the Sayers Conversation podcast. As part of our special Innovators series, today our guest is Tessa Court. She is the CEO and founder of Intelligence Bank. Enjoy. Welcome. Welcome to episode two, episode two of our Innovator series here on uh, the Sayers Conversation. We're going to speak to Tessa Court. Tessa is the CEO, the founder uh, of a business called Intelligence Bank, which will obviously come on to Intelligence Bank. Uh, welcome, Tessa. Yeah, thanks. Nice to be here. It's great that you're here. Um, the Sayers Conversation, it's all about us having a relaxed chat about about the world of business and and your role in it and the business that you do. We just love finding out about how people are succeeding, really, and um, we love business. That's really the bottom line. We love ideas and we love success and we love people that are thriving and, and, and you're one of those. So uh, you and I have only just met, but I know that I'm going to like you because you're doing really well and I'm a shallow sort of guy. Okay, so <laughs> what, what we do like to do, Tessa, is we like – we just want to make sure you're in the right space. So – Freddie, this is Freddie who produces the um, the show, the podcast. So what Freddie does is he plays you a series of sounds. Yep. And I just want you to tell me the sound that appeals to you most when thinking about having a conversation. So we're just going to go through those now. Okay, Tessa, you and I, we're either... I think we're having a fireside chat. I think we're having a fireside chat. I'm with you. Fireside, you know, I always wanted to call a business fireside. I, I was really keen on that. And then I went out with a, for a cup of coffee with a fellow. He said, oh, look, Russ, I want to have a chat with you. So off we went for a cup of coffee and he said, um, I'm going to start a business, PR business, and I want to call it Fireside. So I was, I, it's a, this is a real quandary for me because I was very keen to start. Stole your name before you yeah. could do anything with it. <laughs> anyway, so I said, that's an, do you like that as a name, Farside? I do, but I don't think it sounds big. So I don't fa- think it sounds, yeah, it sounds small to me. No, uh, it, it sounds like intimate. It. it doesn't sound scalable and big. So if the head co of Fireside was called Firebrand, and then underneath Firebrand, there was a number yeah. of verticals. Yes. One of them is called Fireside, which was maybe your research business. How does that sound? Yeah, I like that better. Okay, yeah. you like that better? So you're a big thinker. We've already worked that out. That's good to hear. So um, you let, let's go back to the beginning. Sure. So you, uh, where do you come from? So I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, in the Deep South, yeah. and moved to New York City and worked in advertising there, in global advertising, which um, was a really fun experience in the sense that it was business and creative at the same time so atlanta georgia that means you're surrounded by coke and all the inches yeah yeah right uh because that's where the coke head office is yes and and when you grew up did you grow up aware that you were in sort of you know well part of the commercial capitalist success story that is america like you your heartland well not really, because my parents are in medicine. So my dad's a, a PhD physiologist and doctor, and my mom was a nurse. So our dinner table conversations were about removing catheters and blood and guts and gore, not business. And right. but from it, from from early on, I 
knew I wanted to be in global advertising. So from like 15, 16, I had posters of New York City in my room. Like I was wow. out of there. So despite my <laughs> parents' best intentions to get me into the field of medicine, um, which they never pressured me, by the way. Yeah. But um, yeah, I always knew what I wanted to do. Like it was very clear to me. And I just loved the intersection between business and creativity. Madison Avenue? Madison Avenue. So okay. started at BBDO. Yeah. Um, and One of the greats. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. And um, so BBDO doing what? So I, I actually have a master's in Latin American politics, and so I speak Spanish and lived in Spain as well, and I did new business for BBD Latin America. So ah. I was really young, and I, I think it was like 22, 23, 24 at that time, and I was running around Latin America doing new business pitches to Gillette and other big brands like Pizza Hut and things like that. And yeah. I, yeah, I loved it. So I wasn't doing, I was probably doing more sales than advertising at the time, but mm. um, I just enjoyed like batting above my weight in the sense like I was, you know, with all the managing directors and all the people running the agencies locally and yep. doing that. So uh, have I got my advertising history right? I reckon that when you were doing new business for BBDO, that that was just at the beginning when new business was starting to get a machine, uh, a machine behind it by the agencies, you know, in that that was a, it was an immature part of the advertising world. Or have I got that wrong? I think so, because everything was all about the work, right? And, and, you know, I think we're in the same vintage. So everybody was talking about the creativity and the work and the relationships. But, um, yeah, this was very much all about expansion because a lot of these um, agencies were partly owned by BBDO. And then when I did it again at Ogilvy and worked in Ogilvy, um, same same sort of model. Yeah. So I think, yeah, it was it was the start of that. And there was only one of me doing that kind of out of New York there yeah. weren't other kind of there wasn't like a new business machine at the time so we'll get to we'll get to the difference between what advertising was then because um, yeah I was working in the northern hemisphere at around about the same time so we both we've had that experience what, what it was then versus what it is now um, and your contribution to what it is now I'm you know really obviously interested to hear all about that but you are here so what what brought you here? As in, you're in Australia. Yeah, so very simply, love. So my my husband um, like was is Australian. So um, yeah, it was just made sense for me to move here at the time, just for personal circumstances. And I've been here since '99, so a long time. And how do mum and dad feel about that? Um, I, it was it was hard to start with, but the great news about my career trajectory and what I've been able to do is I go home a lot. So I go to the, I've always. Um, worked in global marketing when I was the CMO at Hitwise or even this role here. We have an office in um, Irvine and also in um, Canada. So I'm home a lot. So it's I'm able to kind of bridge the two worlds together really nicely. Okay. COVID didn't help. But aside from that, it's been I see them a lot. So Okay, so you were, you were at Hitwise. So that sort of that digital wave, you, you recognized, you said, hang on a second, um, the commercial world is changing. I can, ta- I can transfer my traditional ad skills into the digital world. Uh, and see if I can carve out a career, and Hitwise was the vehicle. Yeah, I mean, if I think about what I love doing and why I was in advertising in the first place and why I'm doing what I'm doing now, is that I love making things. I love that intersection between creativity and business. And um, I guess in the late 90s, early 2000s, you know, advertising really changed where it became less about the creative, more about procurement, (laughs) and it got systematized. And and I think with the rise of personal computing as well, you know, all of a sudden the mystery of advertising kind of went away. And so, you know, we had clients like trying to make their own really bad ads on a, you know, word processing, you know, capability. And, And I think some of the magic kind of went away, but then that was also the tech boom. And 
I just was really excited about the technology and the scalability of technology that we were able to do. So when I moved to Australia, I joined Hitwise as the CMO and head of global sales as well. So that was a super fun experience in not only branding, because I was, you know, an agency before, so it was my first client side job, if you will. Um, But it was really fun being a part of the entire process, not just the creative and the communications. Right, right, and and as a result, you could learn what the other side. You know, you could, you, you knew what a seller, you knew you knew what it was like to be a seller. Yeah. But then you also worked out what it was like to be a buyer. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and absolutely. so a buyer of ideas, a buyer of a buyer of marketing. So what did that then? What did what did you learn from being a buyer versus being a seller? Yeah, so I think. I think when, especially if your career starts out in advertising, it's very communications and brand driven. And you don't really, I think some agency people, especially then, especially when you're working in big agencies, when you're just enveloped with the creative process and brand and everything else, it's it's a pretty shallow existence if you're not able to then go client side and really understand what's driving the financial metrics. And, you know, people ask me all the time, if there's one thing you wish you could do over, it would be... I would probably get an MBA or I'd probably do more of a business degree and understand the financials better um, earlier on. I mean, now that I've been running my own business for 14 years, Mm. I live and breathe the P&L every day. But I think early on, that's what you miss when you're only in ad land versus when you go client side, you're looking at unit economics on how to scale your business. And Mm -hmm. to me, the bridging of those two things was like really exciting and fun. And there are a lot of levers you can pull, right? So you, you have a goal of a growth target or um, let's say profit margin or whatever it is and you have to figure out in sales and marketing is a really good place to figure that out right because you can you can really impact that so that's what I loved I guess about that initial startup experience and we had a good success too so that's always fun yeah yeah yeah. so then let's think about um, let's get straight to it intelligence bank so you obviously saw an opportunity um, and was the opportunity any greater than the advertising world is it deeply inefficient? There's an opportunity to make it more efficient. Was it a better? Was it? Did you articulate it better than I just have? Yeah. So I guess when I was running a global sales and marketing team, um, we had stuff everywhere, and it was inefficient. We were recreating the wheel, and we were small. Like we only had like 85, 90 people in the global sales and marketing team, so it wasn't a huge yeah. entity. Um, but I definitely saw the problem that I had experienced firsthand and said, there's got to be a wet, better way to do this. And so Intelligence Bank was born because it was the product I always wanted. So it's deeply rooted in, um, in industry experience and in, in that. And Intelligence Bank now, um, and it's evolved a lot over time, but it's basically a marketing operations platform that has digital asset management, um, creative workflows, and briefing as well, um, and templating all in one place. So what's the, the efficiency that it brings is that, you know, when you're running a marketing department, you're herding cats, you've got people with great ideas all over the place, which is great, you don't want to stifle that. But you need people to follow the bouncy ball. And especially when, you know, now, I guess, at Intelligence Bank, you know, we service a lot of clients in regulated industries. So not only do they have cost pressure, time pressure? You right. know, everybody has to do more with less, but they're also living under a shadow of regulation. So, so if you're in the superannuation business, for example, correct. So if right. you're in super, you know, you've got APRA, you've got Royal Commission. Even like in healthcare, you know, the FDA just came down on about 700 U.S. businesses saying you're in breach. And you know, when you get advertising wrong, as we all have, you know, um, if you get it wrong on a box of Cheerios and 
price point's a little different. Yeah. Like, it's not a big deal. But when you get someone's home loan or credit card yield wrong, yeah. you can have lawsuits um, being like $200 million. So it's, it's the, the fines are massive. So having that process to kind of manage everything from the briefing to the creative workflows but um, and to the outputs as well and making that, you know, 10 times more efficient yeah. is a good thing. But you don't want to also stifle creativity. And I think that's a really important thing because I think a lot of software can say every single step in the process has to go through our software. And we're very firm about that. We're like, don't do it. Like, get the creative brief approved, get the final assets approved, maybe auto automate some of the brand assets, but don't try to capture every comment, every every word that yep. you have with your agency partner you'll just kill the creativity and no one will use it. So there's that balance. So tell me, um, when you had, so you launched it 14 years ago. Yep. But how long from idea to in the market? You know, we sold off the plan. So we, we had a, um, so my husband and I actually started Intelligence Bank together. He had a market research a strategy um, company and Intelligence Bank was actually the name of his extranet. Yeah. Um, and we, there was a couple of clients who were saying, oh, we would, you know, you've got the market research and some of the TV commercials on it. We would love more data on it. So I wasn't working at the time. We just sold to Experian um, after, you know, for the Hitwise exit. Uh, and I was like, hmm, what am I going to do? And he's like, well, why don't you just like do Intelligence Bank because clients want it. And we know they did. So I kind of took a step back, did a ton of market research, talked to a zillion people. Um, and we decided that it was a conflict to be part of a consultancy and an agency. It had to be separate entities. So we quickly um, spun it out. And the really great news is that our first client was Suncorp. And they're still our client of ours today. And yeah. they helped us build the product. And um, we were just really collaborative with our customers. Um, even like NAB, you know, they came on board in 2011. They're still a great client. And we just listened to their problems and came up with scalable solutions to address that. Right. Uh, and so you had to get builders, though, didn't you? Like, you, you, you had to build something. Yeah. So who, who did the building for you? Yeah, so we got a prototype done so we could visualize what we had. And the funny thing about it is, like, it's not that different to what it is today, So, yeah. which is really nice that we were true to our vision. Um, but when we first built it and we put all the assets in there, um, we, we knew we had to bring in um, the developers in-house. In and I, I'm not technical. I mean, I can talk tech and understand it, but I'm not a programmer. Yeah. So we did hire um, a um, really great startup guy who's literally our head of um, product strategy now and is amazing. He was our second employee and a really awesome core developer team pretty pretty soon. But we we had a firm belief that you have to start a business with business. Like, you don't, you know, I guess we were a little old school in that regard where we weren't like, let's raise a bunch of money and just go for it. Like, we were very commercial from day one. I think we were profitable in our first year. So, but collaborating with clients to actually develop the product was was really okay. great. Okay, so let's get to, let's fast forward when we are now today. Yeah, sure. I want to get some numbers because I know you're in Australia, you're in New Zealand, you're in the USA, you're in Canada, you're in the UK, you're in Europe. How many, how many countries? So we have physical offices in three countries, uh -huh. um, but we have clients in about 55 countries. 55 countries, yeah. and how many clients? We've got 450 active clients right now. And the client is on the buyer side. So have you got agencies that are clients or you've got client clients? Most like of our clients are brands. So yeah. we work, for example, in, here in Australia, we work with four out of the top five banks. We work with tons of super funds. Yeah. Um, we, we work with everyone. So we, we, we have a lot of government clients, but we also have smaller clients like 
um, you know, cosmetics brands or retailers or, or whatever it is. But our sweet spot definitely is in larger complex organizations. So three offices, 55 countries, 450 brands. Yep. It's going pretty well in 14-year period. Yeah. <laughs> I'd suggest it's going really well. Ownership? Yeah, so um, we were <laughs> we were um, invested by a private equity company in the U.S. They're based in Kansas City um, called Five Elms, so they're a majority owner uh-huh. of the company now. Um, and they in, a couple of years ago, they invested um, about 50 mil um, Aussie into the company, which is really being used to drive growth and to drive product. Yeah. Uh, and then next phase, okay, so three country, three offices, 50 countries. So there's, there's still st- a lot of growth ahead of you, I would think. Tons, yeah. tons, yeah. And I guess for us right now, and especially given the macroeconomic climate and things that are going on in Europe and things like that, um, we, we, we do service clients globally all the time. Um, but in terms of office expansion, you know, we are – firmly in the U.S., and that's been our growth path. Yeah. Um, we've got about 40% of our revenue comes from the U.S. now, which is which is awesome. Um, it, feel, it felt, I think, at the time easier to go to the U.S. than it actually was, and <laughs> I was a little cocky about it, saying, oh, I'm American, that, yeah. that's easy, and I know a zillion people over there. But um, it's actually a really hard market to crack, um, especially since just the size of it. So to give you an indication, you know, Australia is – the size of New York State from a population perspective. And California, where we're headquartered, is the sixth biggest economy in the world. Yeah. So it's just the scale and the money to do what you want to do. Even, you know, that we're backed by private equity, we still have to get our unit economics right. And it's not about just spending tons of money in advertising. It's about being super targeted about our ideal customer profile and making sure that we're talking to the right people. Because you can burn a lot of cash really quickly. So trade marketing, does that play a big role in what you do in the U.S.? Um, a little bit, yeah. So yeah. We, we do work with partners and um, there are a lot of really great um, consultants who help big brands kind of navigate through the technology because yeah. there's a really interesting dichotomy that the tech is moving so fast, but capability is not moving as fast. So people don't understand, like there's there's definitely early adopters, but like for bigger brands, like getting things done and getting things moved through the system is really hard sometimes. So um we do work, so to answer your question, we do work a lot with um, yeah. consultants. Yeah, so well. I can see the consultants playing a, a role because the yep. consultants, in effect, they can act as sales, sales team yep. but also embed the tech into the client. Correct. Right, Correct. which yeah. is, a, which is a, almost a sweet spot for consultants these days. Marketing tech. So you're going to have to teach me a lot about marketing tech because I, it, it, I haven't been – in a senior position in a, in a significant ad job for quite a while now. And whenever I hear the th- term marketing stack, I go, right, I've heard about it, but I really don't know what it is. I don't. Can you tell me what the hell that is? Yeah, sure. So MarTech is an industry of itself. And what's really interesting is that about 10 years ago, it started off with like two to 3,000 companies and it's literally grown there's like 11,000 in the martech space so there are 11,000 companies now banging on the cmo's door trying to sell them something so (laughs) for brands it's super overwhelming and there's a lot of things so it's really it really encompasses everything from the content creation process in terms of like what we do is briefing in um you know creative tying that back to disclaimers Storing assets in the dam, proofing, et cetera, et cetera. So the, the process. You've that, get, you, that whole process. Yeah. But we're just like literally a 
part of the whole ecosystem. So there's yeah. there's tech for SEO and for um, keyword buying and things like that. There's also you know marketing planning and budgeting tools. So I think what's important <clears throat> for any Martech brand is to be is to integrate, right? So whenever we go into a client, even though we'd love for them to use everything we have, they might be using another tool, and we say, all right, well we can play nicely with that. So it's really for companies, it's the integration of these pieces, and especially you know if you think about every brand's website is their front door, right, to to the company, and so being able the the Martech stack really needs to integrate with the website and with also digital transformation processes. Yeah. So like how are companies using technology to better service their customers, even down to customer service and things like that. So um, or no wonder the consultants are playing a role because they can help the client, you know, unravel what tech they need versus what tech they don't need, I assume. Yeah, and there's always these trends where first it's like, oh, you need one provider that does everything, but then you're not getting best of breed versus yeah. then it's kind of gone the other way. Now there it's there's a concept called headless where Nobody really cares about the front end. It's really about hooking up the back end of everything um, together. So I like the idea of headless. You can orchestrate it. Yeah, I know that that's what I would be if I was in. The, if I was I, if <laughs> the I headless horseman. <laughs> yeah, if I was operating in in your world, I would find myself to be entirely headless. I would I wouldn't know where to point myself. Um, so, but when I look at your website and when I have a look at your offer, it actually it's quite it's very. It's very simple in what you're actually providing. And I think that might be the genius of, of what you're doing in that if you're a client, in particular a substantial client, yeah. herding cats, as you said earlier, I mean, total nightmare, and you provide the cat herder. Pretty much. And, you know, you think about in terms of, but I think what's important is you do it at the inflection points that matter, right? So you don't try to digitize every piece of creativity and every bit of the process, but you do it where you can get fired or sued. Right. So, for example, the creator brief is really important. As we all know, crap in, crap out, right? Yep. Excuse my language. But um, but if you don't get that right and you but spend... You yeah, but you don't write it, though, do you? No, you we provide the software, though, yep. to ensure when briefs come in, they're standardized, they're bringing in customer personas. Yeah. Um, it's approved. <laughs> like, yeah. people sign. You know, the yeah. worst thing in advertising yeah, yeah. is like, oh, who signed off on that brief? Yeah. I don't know. No one, right? So, so you'll have prompts. There'll be prompts in order to yeah, help people. Yeah, so it's an, it's, an, it's an online brief that also then brings in. So as an example, like, you know, big insurance companies will have situations where they're like, okay, I need to do a print ad for New South Wales, and we're selling home insurance. So what's the disclaimer on it? Like, what what's the fine print that needs to be on it? So we help to automate that yeah. so the creative process can go a lot faster. So clients who use our tool will take, go from, like, creative workflows and approvals from, like, sometimes 10 days to two weeks down to two days so they can just move things out the door a lot quicker. So quality control, you clearly play a big role in that. Yeah. Though, do, do people... Do people think oh, the machine is providing the quality control? I don't have to, or they recognise that they need no, to. No, I think they they embrace the process, but I think it's how it's implemented, right? So if you, it's like any piece of software. If you go too crazy with it, um, no one will use it. It'll be too hard. But if you again just capture the inflection points that matter in terms of efficiency and compliance, right? Then it gets used, and it's it just makes the world of difference for brands. Okay, a crass question. What's Intelligence Bank worth now? Uh, that'll be up to our private equity firm. I can't really comment on that, but hopefully hundreds and hundreds of millions. I hope it's worth hundreds and hundreds of millions as well. So the, ne the next wave, okay, 
Well, I okay. I was looking at a, a, a software called Albert. Have you seen Albert? No. So Albert is a machine that uh, places the advertising, digital advertising, yep. in the uh, on the platforms that it believes delivers the best ROI, yep. and changes the advertising in order to deliver the best ROI. So yep. the machine itself does it. Yep. So it'll send out, you know, um, ad A, B, and C. It'll then see which gets the best return on, on which medium yep. and which language gets the best return and then does the, does the work for and you. And does the optimization, And then does the optimization oh, of not just the media but also the creative work. Yeah. So you'd have to think that that's where the business is going to go. Totally. I mean, AI is, you know, a super exciting part of MarTech. And it's, you know, I saw a meme the other day when they had all the major MarTech companies and it was like, AI was like on top of every single one of them. Like that's going to be the roadmap for the next, you know, kind of five years. But we've been using AI for since 2015 in our product. So we're pretty familiar with it. Um, I think what's interesting about it is that it's as exciting as when the personal computer came out. Like it's as amazing and transformative potentially. I think there's some issues with it in terms of the quality is about an inch deep on a lot of in a lot of places so especially with for generative AI so sometimes it's amazing and you're like oh my gosh I can't believe I was able to work this much faster but I don't think we're there yet where you can remove humans 100 yeah. percent um, even on creative calls like that so yeah it might be it might be better like even like in Google AdWords right now a lot of people and we do this like we use AI to kind of give us the best combinations of keywords and bids and things like that but sometimes I look at them and I'm like that doesn't make sense. Like, yeah. even though, like, machine says, yeah, this is great, I'm like, uh, that a person would never talk like that or think like that. So I think it's definitely the future, and it's where all MarTech is going um, and, and creating elements in that, but you have to worry about that. The other thing I think from a brand perspective for clients as well is that, especially for creative, like, there's a lot of really great AI tools on imagery and video where you can change the ethnicity of a person, like, with the click of a button, right? And you just have, like, there's some ethical issues around that. Like, well, why aren't you using an Asian person versus mm-hmm. why are you turning a white person Asian, as an example? Why aren't you actually using real talent or yeah. things like that? So there's obviously massive cost efficiencies, but there's yeah, the, the there eth- things that you have to kind of uh, think about. So yeah. I, um, you, you're, you're making me think about an old um, criticism I used to have of the ad world in that, uh, and it was actually... It was actually around Levi's UK. So Levi's United Kingdom, um, Bartle Bogle Hegarty, BBH. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant advertising. Every single year, two great commercials, unbelievably well produced, 60 seconds in length, brilliant music. The advertising industry went completely nuts. Everyone loved it. But it was actually operating in a parallel universe to the consumer. So the ads themselves were providing uh, a machine the ads themselves were creative, they were content, there were people that were employed and people enjoyed making them, but they actually had no effect on the business whatsoever, as in the Levi's business. Right. Yeah? So, and the advertising industry convinced themselves that the only thing that mattered was the brand and from the brand everything else would flow. Um, So maybe the brand scores were good, but not much else. Are we in danger of actually creating a parallel universe? So... Let's just call it marketing technology can talk to itself, machines to machines, but actually have no effect whatsoever on the punter. 
Yeah, I think when marketing, I think it's actually the opposite is what, what I think happens is that marketing technology becomes super efficient. And yeah, we're maximizing ads for ROI and, you know, honing down on things like really carefully through automation. But I think the creativity is going to lack, right? Like I worry about, because I love creative and I'm like an ad, I'm one of those people who watches the Super Bowl for the commercials, not Super Bowl. But I worry that everything is going to be this messy middle, like websites, banner ads, you know, all the ads are going to be very targeted, but they're all going to look and feel and sound exactly the same. So I think differentiation is going to be at a premium. And I actually think smaller creative studios are actually going to be revered because all the AI, because AI just learns on itself. So I'll give you an example. So um, our head of product strategy, who's like a creative genius in his own right, but he, he does music on the side and on the weekends and stuff, and he's in a band. And he was like, oh, I'm just playing with this AI, and I made this awesome, I said, you know, let's make this song and make it sound like Nick Cave. And it's yeah. amazing, and yeah. it sounds just like Nick Cave. And I'm like, yeah. that's great, but where are you? Like, because <laughs> everything sounds, but everything's going to be ripped off on each other, so it's going to be this circular reference. So, right. So I think there's a bit of that. I think... A lot of times also companies are trying to make sense of marketing and are trying to make sense of brand and measure it, you know, and, you know, a lot of brand and marketing activity, you can't measure it. Like it's hard to measure the ROI and it's hard to measure attribution. And especially if you're in this multi... Yeah, the magic, the magic bit's hard, right? Where's the magic? I know, it's hard. Yeah. Yeah. So this might interest you. Um, I was asking a um, professor about, a professor of a creative school and um, the Australian Film, Television and Radio School. And I said to her, can you help me define creativity? And she said, well, think of it like this, Russ. There's three C's in creativity. There's the small C, the creativity that we've all got. So, you know, you might be amazing at um, making your house look brilliant or cooking spaghetti sauce or, you know, or you can just, you know, get your pen out and do something interesting. Just normal creativity. 97% of us have got that. Then there's professional C. So the ability to make money out of your creativity and then there's the big C, and the big C is the out-of-the-box, brand-new, something you've never seen before. Of course, the big C is mar- – there's hardly anyone who would consider themselves big C, let alone le- actually are big C. Where I think it's going – I'm testing this on you – the middle ground, the professional C, making money out of being, cre- being creative, I think that's under threat. But what isn't under threat is the big C. I totally agree. Right. I think the big C is going to be even more in demand right. because I think the middle C is going to be homogenized. Exactly. 100%. Okay, so now what role um, can you play in helping people? Uh, I, I get the role you're helping with professional C, yeah, but what role can Intelligence Bank play in the big C? Look, I think there was, there's a really good YouTube video out and there's, a, there's an art director who did a mashup between Ikea, I think it was Patagonia or, you know, one of those out you know, outdoor brands. And they were using AI to speed up the art direction process. And it was creative. It, it was big secret, even though it was commercial. It was yeah. cool. And it was um, it was really thought-provoking. And I think the AI tools in terms of generative media, it helps you imagine faster. And that's what I love about it. I like and, it. And, and it depends on the person, right? Like, this guy pulled this off because he's super creative. And, but... Somebody like me or another just person kind of who loves the business and are in the business would never be able to tell those prompts that way because that guy was a big C, right? Got it. Yeah. Got it. 
So Tessa, this is Freddie. So Freddie, um, we ask. So I say to Freddie, if you ever want to ask some questions, just go ahead and ask. Freddie's written some fantastic work stuff around um, the opportunity that AI provides for Big C. So anyway, any questions, Freddie, for Tessa? I do. Thank you, Russ, and thank you, Tessa. Um, going back to almost the start of the conversation, uh, you lamented how uh, some of the people in the creative world who spend all of their time around the creative process uh, lack that sort of brand side, that client side understanding. So as someone uh, in the on the creative side of the fence, uh, what's lesson number one or just the one sort of marketing fact uh, that would separate uh, a creative from a really commercial creative that can really help other people they work for? I don't I think if you do that, like the creativity will die. <laughs> like I kind of so, so like, don't, don't want to do that. Just don't, don't do it. Do it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Don't hire a suit to like do that. But, I like um, it, Tessa. I don't know. Like I think it's good. I think if you hinder creative too much, it starts to stink, right? And it yeah. starts to get watered down and kind of crappy and not where it needs to be. Um, I do think understanding though, just in general, for anybody in business really understanding the unit economics of a business and what drives a business is important. Like, you're never going to go wrong with that. Like, like understanding what makes a business tick and what makes it profitable and what makes it work in those Mm -hmm. dimensions outside of the, just the creativity part and the look and feel part, I think is really important for everybody. It it might be of interest, Tessa, the agency I worked at in London, the creative department was never allowed to be seen by the client. And I, li- and I mean, never. <laughs> it was... And they, they were, it was an outstanding advertising agency, yeah. I'll tell you. It was for amazing. That, for that reason, For I that think, reason, yeah. yeah, totally. Now, you've, you have said, um, and you need to help me out here, the job's done when the CMO and the chief risk officer are best friends. Yeah. What does that mean? Well, in, in a large organisation that's regulated, so Tab Corp is a really good example of one of our clients, like, they came to us because managing, you know, they're heavily regulated as an industry, and then there's different regulations state by state, as an example. Um, And they came to us because working at the speed in which they wanted to work at was super, super hard because there were always these disclaimers and fine print that you had to put on a poster that was in New South Wales versus a banner ad that was going anywhere, and then the banner ad is like, you know, a hundredth of the size of a poster, so how do you squeeze it all in and do it? So... They came to us with that problem, and we were able to bring together not only the briefing capability, but also the ability to produce ads very, very quickly. So about 30% of their advertising happens through our system from a, from a banner and, a, I guess, a digital perspective. And they're able to do it without any compliance errors because the images, the templates, the disclaimers, the copy are all set. So regardless of the type of race they're promoting or the offer, like the legal team doesn't have to worry about looking at the granularity of the media buy, for instance, to make that decision. So like last year for um, Spring Racing Carnival in Melbourne, um, they were able to like with six designers get out like 9,500 assets with zero mistakes within like a couple of months, like which is unheard of. Like the, so so at, at the end of the day, the marketing people and the compliance people are friends because they're not they're not fighting with each other. I mean, yeah. back in the day, the last thing you wanted to say is, "Oh, the ad has to go to legal." Like yeah, it's a totally. nightmare, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when those those two departments can be friends, I think we've done our job. Have you, have you put a dollar number on the efficiency? 
So let's say, Massive. yeah. So let's say I was a ten, let's say I'm a traditional ten million dollar spender. Yeah. Um. What what percentage of savings are you able to give me? Do you reckon we're probably able to get like on average we're able to get between twenty three and forty percent in efficiency of time to market. Wow. Okay. So, so it depends on your cost basis of okay. what that means from a dollar amount. But it's a good it's a good chunk of money. It's massive. So yeah. so do you find that the advertiser goes, oh gee, look at that money I've I've saved. I've, I've I'm now more efficient thanks to Intelligence Bank. Do they put that into their media or do they say, I'll pocket that? I think they all pocket it. <laughs> <laughs> I would. <laughs> yeah. It's a really interesting one yeah. though, isn't it? You know, the I think they I think they do. I think I think so so I think with digital, um, unlike, you know, T V ads where, you know, you mentioned the Levi's agency would do two big ads a year and they'd mm. spend all their time doing that. Yeah. The problem with digital, and especially if you're optimizing for ROI as well, and the digital spend is so diverse uh, across different media and different platforms and sizes and mm. everything else, like it's such a pain in the neck to do. And p- most people didn't go to design school to resize a social ad 45 times. So yeah. if we can automate that, what it means is that the marketers and the designers can be elevated to do better work, what they want to be doing in more strategic and more higher value. So if we can automate kind of the high volume, low value capability. Yeah. Not that it's low value, but like I get it. if we can automate that stuff, then yeah. they can rise to the occasion the and just that be was, more strategic. Yeah, the stuff that was high touch that doesn't need to be high touch. No, that's right. Okay, so I've really enjoyed our fire. This has been a nice fireside. Now, I, I loved your answer at the, at the top of the show around um, fireside. Yeah, it, it's not a bad name, but it's not big enough. And... You know, because clearly you're a big thinker, Tessa. So why not have a business called Intelligence? Like, who doesn't want to have a bit of intelligence, Freddie? And bank, right? So bank that. Uh, oh, yeah, and you're making me think of Rupert Murdoch because what did he call his business? News Corp, right? I'm I'm not going to just own a newspaper. I'm going to hold. I'm going to hold own the entire sector. So congratulations Thank on you. Intelligence Bank. It's clearly flying, um, and I suspect that this is just the beginning. Exactly. Good on you. 14 years in, just the beginning. Good on you. Well done. Thank you.